Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den græske økonom, intellektuelle og forhenværende finansminister Janis Varoufakis. Varoufakis har i årtier været en toneangivende kapitalismekritiker i Europa. Han har udviklet nye teorier, blandt andet sammen med James Galbraith på Texas University i Austin. Og så var han i en helt afgørende periode tæt på den absolute magt i Europa, da han var finansminister under Alexis Tsipras i Sidicas regering under den græske gældskrise og den europæiske gældskrise i 2015. Det vil sige, at i den afgørende konfrontation mellem det, som blev kaldt for Trojkaen, som var den internationale valutafond, Verdensbanken og EU-kommissionen, der sad var du faktisk på den anden side. EU-kommissionen og Merkel ville på daværende tidspunkt have spareplanen, det der blev kaldt for austerity, mens Varoufakis under inspiration fra blandt andre amerikanske økonomer insisterede på, at Europa skulle investere sig ud af krisen. Det betyder, at han har den sjældne position, at han har oplevet magtens praksis helt tæt på. Han har set, hvordan magten, den politiske magt bliver forvaltet, når kapitalismen står midt i et af sine historiske skæringspunkter, som jo simpelthen handlede om, at Grækenland skulle være med i EU, eller Grækenland skulle smides ud af EU. Som handlede om, at Grækenland skulle reddes, eller om Grækenland ikke skulle reddes. Det handlede om græssuverænitet, det handlede om europæisk sammenhæng, det handlede om kapitalismen. Efter det har, var du faktisk på forskellige måder vist sig som en af de meget toneangivende europæiske, radikale, venstreorienterede intellektuelle. Han har været med til at lave opstillingslister til Europaparlamentsvalget i øjeblikket har han gang i et nyt projekt. Men grund til, at jeg har talt med ham, er fordi han har skrevet en ny bog, som hedder Techno-Feudalism, med undertitlen What Killed Capitalism. Pointen i Varoufakis bog er, at kapitalismen, som vi kendte den i det 21. århundrede, er forbi. Den magt, som teknovirksomhederne har i dag over os, er helt anderledes end den, det 20. århundrede store virksomheder havde over os som arbejdstagere og som borgere i samfundet. Fordi det er en helt ny magtform, der er åbnet med de enorme tech-virksomheder, som er blevet skabt, og den afhængighed, vi alle sammen har af dem. Vi starter den her samtale med, at han fortæller om, hvad hans far har lært ham. For på en eller anden måde er hele den her bog, som handler om, at kapitalismen er død, men det, der kommer efter, er bestemt ikke bedre, et langt brev til hans far. Og vi slutter med nye måder at drage den her kapitalisme til regnskab på, alternativer til den her kapitalisme, og svar på spørgsmålet, hvordan skal oppositionen forholde sig, hvis hele den kapitalismekritiske position er død med den kapitalisme, som vi kender fra gamle dage. Så det er de helt store linjer, det er de radikale svar, og det er med eksistensen på spil i den her samtale med Janis Varoufakis. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. I want to ask you first about your father, because in the last book we got to know your daughter. Now we get to meet your father, and it appears that he's a very interesting character, uh, that he appears to have had a certain understanding of the contradictions and complexities of, of capitalism. His, his personal story is also important to, to the book. Could you tell his personal story in a few words first? Yes, he was. My dad was a remarkable character. There's no doubt about that. Um, I owe a, a huge amount uh, to him, and I don't even know whether I have done him, um, you know, uh, the honor that he deserves. But anyway, the the, the short version of his um, 
biography is that he was born and raised in Cairo, Egypt, as part of the European expat community, which was essentially a ruling class within Egyptian society, comprising British, French, Italians, uh, Jews, uh, Armenians, and of course, Greeks. Uh, his mother was the major influence in his life. She was uh, French educated. Uh, she was a suffragette in the 1920s, uh, perhaps the only member of the expat community that struggled and fought for the rights of Egyptian women uh, for their emancipation. So my father had this very French Enlightenment, um, radical humanist upbringing. Uh, at the age of 20, 21, he gave up a job, a very cushy job working for a bank in Cairo, because he has the, this dream. His father was Greek, of course. He had the dream of um, going to Athens University to study physics or chemistry or a combination of the two. The result was that he was caught up in uh, the midst of the worst civil war uh, Europe has seen since uh, the Spanish Civil War. And um, because he refused to denounce communism on the basis that it's not the business of the state to make you denounce anything, <laughs> even ideologies that you don't share, uh, he ended up in prison, in a prison camp, um, in a real concentration camp for um, anything up to four years. Then he was released, he finished his uh, education, uh, he worked as a chemical engineer for decades and decades and decades in uh, the steel industry. And he always maintained uh, a very nuanced position regarding even his most uh, deeply held and thought out beliefs. So even though he was a left winger, that experience forced him, in a sense forced him, made him join the Communist Party. And he continued to vote for the Communist Party up until the 1980s. I have to say that. Um, my father was always warning me against the authoritarianism and the abuses of the communists. <laughs> so he, um, he, he knew how to appreciate uh, contradictions. Uh, he loved liberalism, but he thought that liberalism was simply a, a front in the end, in practical terms, for the power of big business. He loved communism, but he feared the Communist Party. Uh, he really, truly enjoyed music, literature, but above all else, he loved the dialectics of nature, as he used to call them. The double nature of light, for instance, the way in which uh, iron, pig iron, is transformed into something quite different chemically. Steel, when uh, baptized in uh, cold water. So these are all the makings of a um, comprehensive education I received at a ridiculously young age uh, of the important, you know, the, the beauty of materials, the role of technology in uh, turbocharging human history, and also the deep contradictions that, you know, the age of iron was remarkable because it sped up history, it gave us civilization, civilization but at the same time it gave us uh, new fangled forms of misery and inhumanity, just like capitalism, just like technology, just like AI today. So that was, in brief, who my dad was. And he's very influential for you, not only as his son, but also for you as a leftist, because many of us become leftists out of either outrage over social injustice or we fall in love with stupid ideas and we think the world is so simple. So that's very often the access to, to becoming a leftist. 
But from the beginning, being a leftist for you was about a certain sensitivity towards the duality of things that you learned from your father. How did that shape you? It, it constituted me. Uh, the idea that everything is pregnant with its opposite, which is, of course, very deeply ingrained the uh, thought of um, German philosopher Hegel, which then influenced Marx. The idea that um, you know light can simultaneously be particles and waves. That was you know, an idea that my father conveyed to me very early on, which was, for me, a stepping stone towards recognizing the dual nature of labor under capitalism, that it is simultaneously a commodity, bought and sold for a price, the wage, but at the same time, simultaneously, it was something else, something that can never be commodified, which is this life force that gives value to commodities. Because if machines take over production fully and we end up with something like the Matrix economy, you know, the, the movie, The Matrix, where machines reproduce themselves and they don't need humanity at all, except as sources of um, electricity in the case of that movie, uh, then there's obviously no economy. You end up with um, you know, AI, with robots, with machines, they reproduce themselves, they can think, they can do stuff, they function together, they create things, but that's not really an economy. It's like, if you look inside a watch, a watch, a mechanical watch, or an electrical watch, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, you, what you see is a system. It functions. The different parts each contribute something so that the watch can tell you the time. But there's no economy in there. There's a network of machinery, but it's not an economy. To have an economy, you have to have this second nature of labor, which cannot be commodified. It cannot be quantified. It is this mystique that gives, breathes life and value value to the products of human labor and and your father he, he he also asked you a question when he was very old and he asked you about the consequences of computers being able to speak to one another and you refer to that in the book as a killer question for you and your book is kind of um, a response to your father's question well, he was not old. This was, this was in 1993. My dad then wasn't even 70 at the time. My father only died two and a half years ago uh, in his uh, mid-90s. So this was a couple of years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, 1991. It was 1993. I was visiting. I lived in Australia back then, and I was visiting Greece, and I connected him to the Internet using one of those antiquated modems. Antiquated for us back then. It was um, you know, the most advanced thing ever. <laughs> and um, and he was very impressed that his laptop could communicate with other computers and could access news sites and feeds. There weren't that many websites back then, but feeds, you know, news feeds and stuff. Yeah. And he could send emails. Um, we didn't even call them emails. Oh, yeah, I think we did. By that time, we'd call them e emails. Uh, and as I was fixing his computer and connecting it and was showing him how to do it himself with you know, usernames and pins and all that. He looks at me and says, so what is it? Now that computers talk to one another, does this mean that capitalism has won and it will never be defeated? It will never be overthrown? It is here to stay forever? Or might this network of computers prove capitalism's Achilles heel? That's what I refer to in the book as the killer question because you know, back then, I have to tell you, I didn't know what the answer was. I didn't have an answer. I, I was scratching my head, 
and um, I didn't have it. Over the years, an answer began to emerge, to develop in my mind, and especially after 2008 and 2010, 12, 13, with the rise of big tech, it turned into the answer which I'm giving in techno-feudalism in this new book of mine. And, you know, for many years, the answer to your father's question would be, this proves that capitalism will be stronger than ever before, that we see uh, new capitalists becoming very, very rich. We see an enormous concentration of wealth and capitalists like Jeff Bezos or or Mark Zuckerberg attaining a power that we didn't. We have other people saying that as a response to your father's question. But at the core of your own response is this conception of cloud capital, uh, which is very significant to understanding you of your of your new book. What is cloud capital and how does it differ from the good old uh, economic capital? Well, before I answer this specific and very poignant question, let me say that back in 1993, when my dad asked me that question, it wasn't clear what effect the internet would have mm. on the power of capital. Because let me remind you, the first version of the internet, what I call Internet One, was not a capitalist machine. Mm. It was, if anything, a collaborative commons. It was a digital commons. Uh, in 1993, there, were, there was no big tech. There was no Amazon. There was no Google. There was no Apple uh, taking over the internet. Uh, we had collaborative protocols. We had HTM, we had uh, SMTP. We had all these protocols that people actually produced and made available for free to everyone to use. Uh, and th there were political economists, there were activists who hailed the internet as a major tool mm. against capitalism because it was a commons as opposed to a privately owned piece of capital. But of course, by the late 1990s, especially in the early 2000s, and increasingly so ever since, that was monopolized. It was We had a new kind of enclosures in the same way that the enclosures fenced off the land and gave rise to capitalism in Britain, in England, in Wales, and in Scotland. We have we had a new the new enclosures. Suddenly, Google, Facebook, TikTok, and Alibaba in China, Tencent, um, Airbnb, Uber, and so on, created big walls that you could only penetrate by you know registering your credit card or entering as um, uh, a guinea pig, as a cloud surf, as I say, somebody who um, companies like Google and Facebook use in order to attract advertisers and use you as the the magnet for advertising capital. Uh, and that led me to the idea of cloud capital because there have been many, many books and some really good ones like uh, you know Surveillance Capitalism by Zuboff and others who have made the point that these conglomerates that are, have essentially enclosed digital spaces on the internet and created what I call cloud thieves, uh, they exercise an enormous amount of power. They harvest our minds for information, and then they use that in order to create power over us. This is not a new uh, idea. It's not the main idea in my book. Where I depart from the surveillance capitalism story 
is that, as you said, I think, and I hypothesize, and I put forward the idea, the notion, that we have a new form of capitalism, which is emerging on the cloud, in the cloud. <laughs> and I call this cloud capital. And you see, there's a very big difference to saying that Google is, or Facebook, is a monopoly. It has monopolized a segment of the market. Digital market doesn't matter whether it's digital or analog, but it has monopolized the market and it uses its monopoly power to extract value from us. Well, Henry Ford knew how to do this. <laughs> Westinghouse knew how to do it. You know, Thomas Edison knew how, how to do it. Rockefeller with Standard Oil knew how to do that. So that would not be new. It would be digital, but it wouldn't be new. The new aspect would be that it can actually directly harvest information data from our heads. But I think it's far more radical what is going on. And here is the point. And that is the direct answer to your important question. See, capital so far has been a produced means of production. So whether it's a fishing rod, a steam engine, an industrial robot, a very advanced industrial robot, it is something we have produced in order to produce something else. Produced means of production. That's what capital used to be, all forms of capital. That's the red definition of capital, the most useful definition of capital in my mind. Now, Amazon.com, together with the interfaces that it has built, including you know, the device Alexa, which is sitting on your desktop, that is something well beyond a produced means of production. Amazon is not producing anything. So it's not a produced means of production. It is a produced means of behavioral modification. You see, behavior modification is part of um, power. If I can behave, modify your behavior, uh, brainwash you, make you do things, or you know, maybe I'm a good, very good speaker, a very good writer, and I can influence your behavior and modify your behavior. Well, we've always said that ever since we started speaking to one another, right? <laughs> Advertisers were in the business of behavior modification for decades now. But what is new with cloud capital is that it is automated. So instead of having a human advertiser, a human preacher, a human politician, a human philosopher modifying your behavior, you have a machine which has algorithmic properties that allow it to make you train it, to train you, to train it, to train you, to train it, to give you very good advice as to what to buy, books, music, bicycles, whatever, impresses you with that, and then once you're impressionable and impressed, then it can sell you other stuff. And not only that, not only does it modify your behavior, but the same algorithm, the same machine, the same piece of capital, which I call cloud capital, can sell it to you directly, bypassing all markets, because Amazon is not a market. This is where I part ways from many uh, authors who uh, describe Amazon as a monopoly. It's not a monopoly. Monopoly, poly means, comes from the same word as to sell, which is associated with a capitalist market. I do not consider Amazon to be a capitalist market. I consider it to be something very different. Because in markets, there is a degree of autonomy of buyers and sellers. We can interact, you can find a seller, you don't like that seller, you go to another seller. Hmm. Uh, you, you know, you talk to other buyers, you say, you know, where did you buy that? Okay. Well, you can do none of that in Amazon.com or Alibaba or any of those uh, trading e-commerce platforms because it is the algorithm 
that matches you with sellers and doesn't allow you to talk to, talk to anyone. The algorithm doesn't want you to talk to them. And the algorithm only matches you with sellers that maximize the capacity of the owner of the algorithm, of that piece of cloud capital, to extract rents, rents, pure economic rents, like feudal lords used to, from the seller, while making you produce, create a lot of the, reproduce a lot of the cloud capital in the form of um, reviews, of likes, and all the things that you do online, posting videos that enhance the cloud capital of the owners of cloud capital. That is not capitalism. Welcome to techno-feudalism, as I like to say. And, and here there's a there's a revolution taking place, you say, where the cloudalists, as you call them, they replace the old class of capitalists. They 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 sort of speak surpass them in 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 the pecking order. I think for many would would say, well, we see these new forms of capital. We and we recognize that in certain dimensions, we are now cloud serfs. Whatever we do, we're we're all the time interacting with these algorithms and enhancing them. But still, we're also part of the old capitalism. It's not like this dimension of society disappeared. So how should we understand the relation between uh, cloud techno-feudalism and the cloud capital and then the old capitalism? Do you, because the market for profit is also still there. Do you understand the question? Oh, absolutely. And you're completely and utterly spot on. You're precisely correct. In two ways, you're correct. Not just in one way. The first thing is that the capitalist sector remains, and it is essential to what I call techno-feudalism, but it is subservient, okay? Mm -hmm. So let me give you an, the example of the great transformation from feudalism to capitalism. When we made the transformation from feudalism to capitalism, a new class, a new ruling class emerged, the capitalist class, but the old ruling class did not disappear. The landlords remained. Land remained an enormous source of wealth, of rents. To this day, if you own an apartment in Manhattan, you know, in the center of Copenhagen, in uh, wherever, you know, you are receiving rents. And the, the more successful the capitalist machine is, the greater your capacity to extract rents from that capitalist sector. So, you know, like in human biological evolution, Inside our DNA, inside our body, we will find remnants of serpent DNA, of earlier forms of, um, you know, entities. So it's not that you, you simply have a complete replacement. When capitalism emerged from the bosom of feudalism, feudalism didn't die. It just shrunk. Mm -hmm. It became subservient huh, to capitalism. Land became subservient to capital, and, uh, and and rent became subservient to profit, but it did not disappear. It remained a very significant aspect of capitalism. Similarly, what I'm saying here is this. The capitalists are capitalists, but the difference is that they own a very special kind of capital. It is a capital that allows them to build what I call these new digital fiefdoms, these cloud fiefs. And through those, uh, to extract from the capitalist sector enormous value, which the capitalist sector, the subservient capitalist sector is producing, and those capitalists siphon off. And because they siphon off so much of it, they are the new ruling class, and the capitalists are vassals. So, uh, you see, this is, this is my 
evolutionary and revolutionary theory simultaneously, nothing dies, nothing goes away. Like feudalism survived capitalism or a feudal sector, call it the rentier sector, the rentiers survived capitalism. Of course, capitalism is essential to the rise of techno-feudalism because in the end, the cloudalist class requires a capitalist vassal class to leech upon, to extract value from. All the values created in the capitalist sector, except that the capitalist sector is not running the show anymore. It's not at the epicenter of power. Nigeria, it's very important in your book that you we must understand that the Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jeff Bezos are not equivalent to the Henry Ford or the Thomas Edisons, because very often when you see Hollywood movies about them, they have described as the old entrepreneurs who got this idea and then they developed this wealth and this great company. But you say they differ in a very specific sense from them, which I think is important to understand. And you use Elon Musk as an example to illustrate it in the book. Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and others, look, they are entrepreneurs. They are very smart people. There's no doubt about that. They're very good at, 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 at business. Uh, they, unlike the feudal lords of the feudal era, uh, they, they have to be smart. The feudal lords didn't have to be smart. Most of them were not, right? They didn't do anything. They simply, you know, collected the rent and had a very good life. Maybe they had, they went to war and um, they had big feasts and all that. But, you know, these people, the Zuckerbergs and the Musks and the Jeff Bezos of the world, uh, and the Sergey Brins, they're very smart people and they have invested a huge amount of money. Most of them, most of that money was not theirs. It was printed by central banks. But nevertheless, they invested it. And they had ideas. And not all of them were successful. We talk about the ones who rose out of this Darwinian struggle for survival of the cloudalists and survived because there were other companies that have died now, like Alta Vista, for instance, if you remember, and Netscape, all gone. So there was a Darwinian process of not com capitalist competition, but rivalry, a kind of what I call a techno-feudal cloudalist rivalry between them, which um, eliminated some and elevated others. But the important difference between these folks and the old generation of monopoly capitalists like Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Westinghouse, and so on, is that you know Ford sold things. He monopolized, together with General Motors and Chrysler, the American car industry, the car market, and sold you a car. He had good advertising, uh, but the advertiser would speak to your heart, and then you would go to Henry Ford to buy a car, a T-model, right? <laughs> now, uh, compare and contrast with Zuckerberg. What do you buy from Zuckerberg? Nothing. You go on Facebook for free. You use WhatsApp for free. Huh? So what he does is he creates, he's created, with the cloud capital that he has invested in, he's created an enclosure, a digital thief. It puts you in there because all your friends are there and may, you may hate Facebook, but all your friends are in Facebook. So what are you going to do? Go some, go where? Even if you and I were to create a fantastic piece of software, which is much nicer than um, Facebook, nobody's going to go in it because their friends are not there. They're in Facebook. So you will go into the digital thief, which is Facebook. And that is where Zuckerberg harvests all your information, sells it to advertisers and to sellers who sell you things, and he charges them 35-40% of the selling price. That's a rent. So he, uh, that's a big difference with Henry Ford. Henry Ford produced the thing that you bought, and you bought it directly. Zuckerberg is caging you in, a cloud fifth, 
making you reproduce the cloud capital that bolsters the cloud thief and erects tall fences around it so you cannot escape from it and your friends and then uses your presence in that cloud thief and your production or reproduction of his cloud capital in order to charge 35-40% to those vassal capitalists out there who will sell you stuff. That is new. That we've never had before. And th that is also the process of the triumph of a certain kind of rent over profit in the old sense of it. Looking back, like you emphasize in the book, no one planned for this. I definitely don't remember a deliberative process where we said we want techno feudalism or any decision. But there was some, there was kind of an unintended consequence of other decisions that were made and something that in hindsight looks very, very important and something that you've been close to personally also are the monetary policies of the central banks over the last couple of decades. I think it's impossible to imagine these fiefdoms being established without these these uh, monetary policies that we've seen over the last couple of decades what what are the responsibility for the central banks here oh it's uh, gigantic they didn't even know they would i don't even think that they know it now that they did it but let me just if if i may a comment about sure. the motives of history the motors of history the steam engine that pulls history um forward um <laughs> history is not democratic at all uh, you said that nobody chose to have techno-feudalism. Of course, nobody nobody even knows that we have techno-feudalism, let alone wills it. But isn't that the case? Wasn't that the case with capitalism? Did anyone plan to have the transition from feudalism to capitalism? No. If in the year 1800, let's say, in England, where at the time when capitalism was edging feudalism out of the way and taking over, if you had a referendum, a referendum in Britain, free referendum. Do you want capitalism? Nobody would say yes. The peasants didn't want it because they were thrown off their lands. The king didn't want it because the king did, and the lords and the barons and the earls did not want those dirty scoundrels, you know, the, the merchants and the factory owners and the engineers to rise up. They didn't consider them to be aristocrats. They wanted to keep them down. The bishops and the vicars were all against because of the great misery that the transition of the enclosures, the transition to from feudalism to capitalism had created. 99.9% .9 of the people in, in 1800 would have voted against capitalism. And nobody planned it. It just happened spontaneously, similarly with techno-feudalism. Okay, but now let's go to the question about the central banks. After 2008, for reasons that have nothing to do with cloud capital, nothing to do with Jeff Bezos, nothing to do with uh, the cloud delists, uh, the the great and the good, in inverted commas, uh, you know, our prime ministers and our presidents and our central bankers met in London, as you know, in April of 2009, uh, totally, totally, utterly panicked about the collapsing financial sector of the West, not so much of the East, but of the West. And they decided to save the financial sector. So they started printing money. In concert, your central bank, the central bank of Europe, the central bank of Switzerland, of Sweden, of Japan, of England, and of course the Fed, the Federal Reserve in, in the United States started printing. They printed, my, in my estimation, is, and I think it's a pretty good estimate, about $35 trillion. That's $35,000 billion. The mind is not capable of wrapping itself around this string of zeros. While at the same time, they were practicing austerity. Here in Greece, we were the champions of austerity, but everywhere you had austerity in Denmark too. Uh, the Americans had austerity, even though Obama was promising stimulus, he delivered austerity in the end. 
if you take into account what was happening at the state level where they had huge austerity. Um, Britain had austerity. Germany had austerity. They imposed it on us uh, so as to impose it on the, the German working class. So, um, so austerity everywhere. What does this mean? It means impecunity everywhere, very low levels of demand. So you have simultaneously trillions and trillions and trillions of money being pumped into the banking system. So finances had money to lend to business, but business didn't want to invest because they looked at the little people out there, the masses, and said, they can't buy our stuff as if I'm going to invest. They will not be able to afford it. So they didn't invest. They took the money. And most of the businesses that took the money from the bankers went to the stock exchanges and bought back their own shares because that's how they pushed up their share value. They were not producing more. They were not investing in good quality jobs or in anything, green technology, green energy, nothing. But their share price was going up because they took all this money from the central bank via the commercial banks and bought their shares back. So interest rates went up. Sorry, interest rates. Asset prices went up, but there was no investment, no uh, serious uh, um, aggregate demand boost from that. Yeah? The only capitalists who took the money and invested it in new capital were the capitalists. Out of the, every $10 that Zuckerberg and the rest invested, more than nine, nine plus, came from the central bank money. So in a sense, my view is that cloud, you know, that the, the would, would would come anyway. But I estimate that it came 20 years earlier as a result of the crash of 2008 in the financial markets and the way in which central banks produced oodles of money in conjunction with the austerity that kept demand down uh, for normal capital, for terrestrial capital as opposed to cloud capital. And that was a major, major um, state financing of cloud capital. And and then looking looking at it now, it appears we are always tempted. I'm a Hegelian of birth almost my myself, so tempted of writing history as one subject driving the history forward, one world spirit or whatever we call it, the motor. But but if we look at techno feudalism in in the West and in China, we definitely see different strategies from the governments trying to kind of I wouldn't say control it, but but trying to challenge it. You see the Xi Jinping's common prosperity program in China is a way of, of challenging techno-feudalism or, or at least limiting or fencing it. In Do you see different strategies from the Western system and the Chinese system to techno-feudalism or is it just the same motor in history? No, I do. I do, except that I would put it a bit more starkly. In the West, there is no strategy by government. Government is owned by big business. So, you know, government is doing as it's being told, more or less, more or less, from Obama onwards. Whereas in China, the state plays a role, has a strategy. Now we can discuss the merits and demerits of the Chinese communist parties or government's um, strategy, but they have a strategy. You know, President Xi Jinping said it very clearly only last year, and this is a unique statement by any leader of a country anywhere ever. He said that his objective, the objective of the Chinese government, is to reduce the rate of investment in uh, okay. China from something like 45% to less than 30 or around 30%. Because he said, and he explained that, that's the only way of boosting the well-being, the welfare of the working class. Now, that is a deep thought for a political leader 
It is a thought that you will never encounter in the West. Well, one of the reasons, of course, is in the West, we have very low levels of investment. We don't have 45 and 50% investment rates. We have tiny <laughs> investment rates. But I don't think that our political system in the West is capable, first, of understanding macroeconomics. <laughs> they are purposely macroeconomically illiterate. That is, it is part of their job description to be macroeconomically illiterate. I, I had this experience myself when I was a member of ECOFIN uh, as the finance minister of Greece and a member of the Eurogroup. Uh, my colleagues, I'm not going to accuse them of not understanding macroeconomics. I'm going to say something worse. They didn't want to know macroeconomics. Hmm. You know, Wolfgang Schäuble ex explained this to me. He said, the less I know about it, the better. You see, that is the difference with the Chinese. The Chinese understand macroeconomics. And they understand, for instance, that a company like Alibaba, which is the equivalent of Amazon in China, only it is much more advanced than Alibaba, technologically, however strange that may sound to some of our audience. So Amazon is more advanced than Alibaba, or Alibaba, no, is, more advanced Alibaba than, is, more advanced. is more advanced than Amazon? Yes. Far more advanced than Amazon. Far more advanced, especially Tencent and its application called WeChat. We don't have that in the West. Imagine, you know, WeChat is like an application that, imagine if we had in one app here in the West, in Europe, in America, same thing, because they're all American anyway. Uh, imagine you had one app that had within it Netflix, Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, Google, Facebook, TikTok, and it allowed you to make free banking transactions from any account to any account that we don't have but you know why we don't we don't have that because wall street will never allow that in the united states there is silicon valley big tech and there's wall street they're separate and they're separate because they represent different interests different owners and you know goldman sachs jb morgan bank of america Citigroup will never allow putting up a, a huge struggle to prevent big tech from messing with the payment system, you know, making inroads into their monopoly of the payment system. Uh, in China, there's no such thing because the Chinese Communist Party makes sure that there, there is no such rivalry between technological companies and banks. So they merge them together, they allow them to have WeChat, but at the same time understand that this is too powerful to be left to a few oligarchs to run. This is why the Chinese com Communist Party comes down on them like a ton of bricks. Why Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, was effectively put on ice. Uh, because the, the government understands that this is too much power to let an individual have. Uh, so to be absolutely and totally open and honest with you, I think that having social control over big tech especially if it is bonded together with banking, is absolutely essential. So I welcome the fact that the Chinese government doesn't let Chinese cap cloud capital run riot. My concern is that I wouldn't want to live under the Chinese Communist Party because I do not trust them. But I would love if the state was democratic and if the state representatives or the social representatives, society's representatives that are reigning in cloud capital were either elected, but I would go further. They, they operated on the basis of a jury system through sortition 
with uh, common citizens exercising power over cloud capital. And just one last question, because I've already taken a lot of your time, but this is so interesting, because near the end of your book, you actually also write that techno-feudalism does open for some space for collective action. There's actually a capacity within it. And of course, this is this is not, we see that all the time. We see a lot of collective action through the internet and we can decide whether this leading to surveillance capitalism or surveillance state like, like in China. But you do point out that there is a capacity for collective action opened as well. And that's where, and I should also say to our listeners that it's actually a hopeful book. The last part of the book is very, you know, gives us something to concrete to work with. I just want to ask you last year, uh, how big is the potential that you see in this capacity for collective action? It's as big as we are willing to make it. And when I say we, I mean democratic movements around the world. Let me give you a practical answer. Let's move away from the sphere of theory. Over the last three years, uh, the Progressive International, which uh, I'm very proudly involved with, we have been running a campaign every Black... Is it Black Monday? Black Friday. Black, Black Friday, yes. Black yes, Friday, sorry. yes. I'm yes. so sorry. I, You know, my Americanisms uh, leave something to be desired. Black Friday. Every year we have been running a campaign, which we call, maybe you've seen it, hashtag make Amazon pay. That's yes. us, the Progressive International behind it. And we're organizing uh, every year uh, a rolling international strike that begins in Vietnam with the sunrise of the new day of Black Friday. Then it goes to Bangladesh, India, Germany, New Jersey, the East Coast of the United States, and ends up at Seattle, Washington State, which is where the headquarters of Amazon is. And so this is a rolling strike involving millions of workers. Imagine if we manage to connect that, to relate this to an international boycott that we could organize using cloud capital. <laughs> That gives you an idea of the kind of potential that cloud capital presents those of us who want to rein in, not cloud capital itself, but the owners of cloud capital, because we are leftists. We don't mind capital. The problem is the ownership of capital, the owners of capital. What do they use it for? So, so to conclude, you know, you referred to Hegel, you know, when he was very young, he lived with Hölderlin. Uh, they lived in a room together. And, you know, Hölderlin said that where the danger grows, that which will save us grows as well. And that's how I feel near the end of techno-feudalism. Yanis Varoufakis, it's such a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking your time. Well, thank you for, you know, making yourself available to have this fascinating, for me, conversation. Thank you. Ciao. Det her var min samtale med Yanis Varoufakis. Den bog, vi talte om, hed Techno-Feudalism. Hvis I gerne vil læse den, anbefaler I at gå ned i den boghandel, hvor I plejer at købe jeres bøger og bestiller den hjem, så er I med til at opretholde hele den intellektuelle infrastruktur, som de små boghandlere er i det her samfund. Den her samtale var produceret og klippet af vores vidunderlige ven og evige hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge skal vi tale med en anden stor europæisk forfatter. Det er den italiensk-svejtiske forfatter, politiske filosof, og professor ved Sciences Po i Paris, Giuliano da Empoli, som har skrevet en bog, der hedder Magikeren fra Kreml, som er en fiktion om en russisk præsident, der hedder Putin, der minder forbløffende meget om Putin, som vi kender og som vi frygter ham. 
Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak for, at I lyttede med.